And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 o'clock. Up next, cover to cover. Hello and welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book, or um, as I like to call it, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan, and I, I do the segment where we talk about film and the impact of of film. Today I have a very special show for you, and I um, am really thrilled to have the director of El Valador here in um, on phone to talk to you. Uh, this is a film that's really very interesting. It's by Natalia Almada. And it's really a film about violence with no violence. It's a documentary that looks at a very interesting way of under, uncovering the the violence that's happening in Mexico connected to the drug wars. So with us to talk about this is the director of this film. I want to welcome you to the KPFA studios, Natalia. Are you there? Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Okay. Natalia is a filmmaker and actually was just awarded a MacArthur grant, so congratulations about that. Thank you. Uh, there is something about your films that strike me as being quite unique. You are a filmmaker who was born in Mexico City and lived both in the U.S. and Mexico. And in this film, what you do is we go through with you, sort of scene by scene, with uh, Martin, who is the night watchman. And we watch him watching the world around him in this world of mausoleums. And these are mausoleums of some of Mexico's most notorious drug lords. And in this labyrinth of the cemetery world, you introduce us to this world and show us dramatic scenery. You know, there's so many different ways you could have talked about violence in Mexico in terms of the drug lords and the drug violence. How did you come upon this idea in the first place? Um, well, I think there were a couple of different things that uh, influenced the choice to shoot at the cemetery. I think the first is that I'm, my family's from Sinaloa, which is the northwest of Mexico, and I was raised in Culiacan, which is the city where the cemetery is. And it's a place where I really love to shoot. I think there's an incredible light, and it's kind of where I've always gravitated towards. It's, um, I shot another film there. It's also thought of as being the cradle of drug trafficking in Mexico. So it's a place where kind of the, you know, what they call medical culture um, dates way back uh, further from the violence that we're living through today. So in all those aspects, I think it's really interesting. Um, secondly, what I was interested in doing is trying to make a film that looked at violence in a way that's different from the way that the media looks at violence, because I felt that especially in Mexico, this kind of bombardment we have of very graphic images of um, of the kind of atrocities that are being committed has produced a kind of numbness um, in general in society or this feeling that it's so overwhelming that there's nothing that we can do or there's, you know, it's too horrific to look at. And so I wanted to see if there was a way to make a film that would humanize um, 
the violence and contextualize it into a greater socioeconomic situation. Well, you did it in a very unique way because instead of doing interviews, we see the scenes, we see uh, the the numerous workers who work all day either cleaning the mausoleums or uh, building new ones, these <laughs> these giant cathedral-like structures to um, these dead people whose names we actually never wind up seeing. Uh, there's something... Um, and then even there's these moments that I thought were, were stunning where we hear crying in the background, people wailing, but we actually never see them. So it isn't just that you were telling the story in a new way, but you were doing it in a very kind of bold way. And I was, and I'm wondering how you sort of conceptualized the step by step, what you wanted to film, or did you just sort of go in there and see what happened? Um. Well, yes and no. I went in there with a, an idea and I think a set of interests and an open mind to kind of respond to the conditions of the place. And one of the things I realized pretty quickly is that, you know, when you're in a place where there's a lot of danger and violence being committed, one of the things that happens is that people don't have the freedom to speak. And so there's a code of silence that needs to be respected, um, both to gain access and trust to the people who are living there, and then also to protect oneself and to protect others. And so, although we usually think of in documentaries the testimony of the spoken word as being kind of the way that we enter into other people's lives, in a situation like this, it's actually not the best way to approach people or to find out what they're experiencing. So given that, Reality, I began to pay much more attention to kind of the rhythm of the place, you know, this place where life kind of stands still by the nature of being a cemetery, but where there's this kind of constant threat of more violence happening, which you see in the construction and the sound design of the film. You kind of have this anticipation that you can sense that this is going to keep happening. Um, and then on the other hand, um, paying attention to the gestures of people's lives and so kind of you know the night watchman for example he waters um, the dirt in front of one of the mausoleums every day and it's kind of this very futile exercise that he does um, that I use symbolically in the film so how did people understand why you were there and what you were trying to do how did you make connections with them well I think it's you know it in documentary, we tend to think that people understand things because we give them facts and figures and maps and quotes and, you know, this kind of tangible bits of information. But I think there's another way to create understanding, which is um, by paying attention to the light and the gestures and the, the sensations and the feelings and the sound um, that puts people in a place um, and hopefully... You know, they experience it in a more visceral way, which can then lead them to go look for information. But um, for me, kind of the informative side wasn't so necessary. And the context of what's happening in terms of the drug war and outside of the cemetery is actually woven into the film through the radio, the, a truck driver that drives by with playing the radio, the news. The news. Yes. And then the night watchman watches the, the news every night. So you get these little bits of news reports about what's happening, which allow you to understand the context around the cemetery and the reason why it's, you know, why all these young people are buried there and why there's so much death. Well, it's so interesting because on one level, when I'm in an environment where there's something scary going on, Either I am hyper attuned to everything happening in the outside world or I can't notice anything. And so there was something about the rhythm of the film that 
both captured noticing everything, but at the same time uh, created a different way of looking at things just by how your eye was seeing things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very accurate way of describing what it means to be in a place where there's violence. I mean, there's a certain survival instinct that life goes on and people keep living and they continue with their daily lives and then there's the reality of what's happening. So it is that kind of, you know, dual sense. And the cemetery, you know, is a place of mourning also. So it's a place where we have kind of already witnessed the act of violence has already happened. But we also know that it's still going to happen. So you're kind of suspended in this, you know, limbo in between these kind of two moments of violence. So what about you? How did you, did you feel safe when you were filming there? It's a question I get asked pretty often, and I always think it's kind of a silly question. I mean, it's normal to ask. <laughs> but, you know, Mexico is right now one of the most dangerous countries for journalists to be working in the world. And so if you're working with a camera in any capacity, I think, especially looking at the violence, and it's hard not to look at it because it's so prominent, um, of course, we're all kind of taking certain risks. Um, but I think that those risks are important. And I was able to shoot for a year, which I think is really significant, um, that I had kind of the protection of the construction workers and Martin and, you know, the people who frequented the cemetery allowed me to stay there that long shooting. And they all took care of me in a sense and made sure that I was safe. Um, I also work with a really great assistant uh, who lives in Culiacan, and he was with me all the time. And and I had a, a great um, system, actually, with my father, who who is not there, but with whom I checked in every three hours on the, on the dot. <laughs> you know, so he was always kind of, you know, checking to make sure I was okay and if something would have happened to be ready to respond. Well, it is interesting because when you see war films or documentaries about war, there's a lot of action happening all the time. And I can imagine that the journalist who is there um, can get into that action mode and sort of either feel protected or not protected, but in that same <coughs> mode. But you are doing things at such a different pace. Everything is, is kind of slowed down. We're at the essence and the rhythm of things. So wh what about you and your body? How, how were you able to kind of be there watching in that kind of way when there was potentially such danger around each corner? Um. Well, on the one hand, it's just an exercise in patience um, and staying kind of aware and also trusting the people around me to also be aware and um, of what was happening, I think. And, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, but, you know, living in Mexico, it's not like, I mean, these things are happening and it's, a, you know, there's over 60,000 people being killed in the last six years, so it's it's not, it's very real, but life goes on and people still it's kind of easy to enter into a certain normalcy, I think. Um, but I found the shooting to be, you know, that issue aside, it was a pleasure actually to shoot, to just kind of slow down. I work by myself, doing camera and sound, and so it's not cumbersome. It's very kind of an improvisation with reality, and and there's a side of it that's very, um, it's, it's very pleasant in a way to kind of just have an excuse to be in a place and look at things and pay attention to the light and the sounds and the, you know, the wind and the color and all those things. 
We're talking with Natalia Amada. Her film El Valador is going to be playing next week at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. Now, the camera, uh, I mean, you not only did the whole film, but you also did the camera. And I think that part is fascinating, that there are certain scenes where the composition of the camera and the frame are... um, uh, can make me weep. I mean, they were just, they were so beautiful and they captured so much. <laughs> um, and I just wonder in the process of, of you looking at something, you know, what, what are the things that you're paying attention to? I mean, we see the final product and if you were shooting over a year, of course, there's many things that we're not seeing, but you know, what do you think makes a good frame and a good little moment in a film? Oh, I think it's, um, I think you just have to really be, you know, kind of awake to the situation to see things and to think of, you know, I have a background in photography and so I think, you know, I was, it was a challenge for me to say, okay, I'm going to shoot a film in this one little corner of the cemetery and I'm going to make it interesting. So pushing things to their limit, for example, um, shooting in the night and not being afraid of the screen actually going black, you know, not thinking, oh, there has to be information, but actually saying, okay, this is the night, and it is dark, and there isn't information, and all we have is a light bulb, but that light bulb becomes symbolic of something. Um, but those kind of, I mean, it's a, that happens in the framing, right, as you're shooting. Yes, <laughs> but yes. It's just being aware of those things to kind of catch them, you know, and, yeah, I hope it works out. <laughs> Well, there's things that, you know, it's um, it's kind of amazing because in some ways what we're talking is a conceptual art piece, but that one that's very, um, that can pull you in, it's not intellectual. Where, for example, there'll be these scenes of these little kids who are clearly the children of um, the cleaners who come every day and, and like, sweep the, the mausoleum out and wipe everything down. And they're outside, you know, practicing their numbers for example and it stands for so many different elements right there you know the counting when you know we're talking about the counting of 60,000 dead we're talking about the fact that the children are just seeing it as a playground and it's a place where the mother works but at the Mm -hmm. same time the person who died and who is buried in this mausoleum is really was probably somewhat of a child themselves somewhere between 17 and 22 and and then there's the fact that it's like actually a sunny, beautiful moment. Yeah, well, those women um, are actually widows. Ah, they're not housekeepers or or oh really help. Yeah, which is you know it happens. It's not. It's a confusion that's easy to make, and it's fine. It's not such a big deal. But um, that's a, I think one of the things that happens. Cultural gaps, in a sense, I think for Mexicans, it's very clear that that those are widows. Oh. who are cleaning the tombs. Um, so the kids are actually the kids of, you know, they're, they're half-orphaned, I guess you'd say. So that even makes um, it more poignant, <laughs> perhaps. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's really moving because, you know, and for me, those widows are a little bit younger than I am, most likely, and I would just, it was very touching to see them, you know, that this was their life, that these their kids were growing up, you know, with the cemetery kind of as a playground, as a place they visited every day with the reality of, you know, this this violence and not having a, a father figure or a husband. And, um, uh, yeah, I found them really, really moving, you know, and to see how they would go every day and kind of clean 
the mausoleums as a kind of ritual of mourning. I thought was also very beautiful. Another uh, scene that sort of uh, struck me is that there is there's all the workers there and so there's this guy who's a plasterer and he is completely covered with white as if you know almost like he represents being the ghost with the broken shoes trying to make something that clearly is for very wealthy people and it just it again um is sort of on the vertices of many different elements all in one and so it makes me think about the editing and and how you thought about constructing uh, the narrative which you did which is like a silent film almost of putting all these different elements together in such a way that um, that they don't just stand for themselves but they're also telling something broader a whole story um, what well, was interesting in terms of editing because I thought of it much more I think as music uh, uh-huh. and <laughs> more than thinking about storyline or plot or you know, does it narratively make sense it was more thinking about um, you know, I'd had this experience listening to improvised jazz and how there would be moments of so much tension um, and kind of chaos or what sounded to me as a kind of dissonance that would seem almost unpleasant and then there would be kind of a moment of melody or some kind of release that would actually make what had come before feel pleasurable. Mm-hmm. And so there was this, you know, I had this experience of actually, I'm not a musician or anything, but that feeling of tension and release that can happen in music um, is actually what I ended up thinking about a lot in the editing of the film. So, you know, how long can you sustain a shot where it, you know, starts to hinge on not being pleasurable, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so that when it when you cut or when you create rupture, when you create... You know, when you go from a very dark shot to a very bright shot, how that can kind of wake up a viewer from a very quiet scene just by changing the light, right? So the editing was was much more working on those levels than it was thinking about, you know, does this make sense? Is there a plot? Is there three acts? Like, you know, it wasn't that wasn't the kind of guiding principle for the edit. Um, and I also I edit as I shoot, so I would you know, go shoot for a couple of days and then start editing and then shoot some more and, you know, come back and edit. So it's a kind of a sculptural process, I think, um, as opposed to saying having, you know, a shooting period of however many months and then an editing period. For me, they, they go together. Well, that's interesting because I, I wonder how then time winds up playing out in in that process because there's something about shooting all the material and then trying to come up with a structure or a form that seems so very different of creating a form and then going back out to shoot do you think that there were negatives about doing it in that way or just positives um well it's the only way i've I've done all my films like that um for a lot of reasons but i like i prefer working that way because the editing process informs the shooting process um in a way that to me is more interesting than thinking, you know, do I have coverage or do I have establishing shots, these kind of terms we use in documentary to make sure that we have the information we need for when we end up structuring the stories. Um, yeah, so, I, so I, I, I like that, to do both at the same time. So when you say that uh, part of what you're doing is uh, somehow improvising, you know, often improvising really works when you're improvising with someone else, you know, when there's some kind of something happening. So 
who like were there the elements in the film that you think that you were improvising with was it the rhythm the time like what what was helping organize you as you're putting all these elements together well i I think the shooting process is a kind of improvisation with reality so it's you know you're improvising with the light with the sound with the characters with what happens with life you know i think to me that's kind of what the what documentary is really about um and in the editing process, I mean, that's not improvisational, but it's working with those elements that you created in that process. And so, you know, in this film in particular, it was how to find, you know, I really wanted the viewer to be in that place and to understand it um, and to be able to read it. So to be able to understand the signs and the, um, you know, the I don't know how to describe it, but. It's working with so few elements, like every element has to do a lot of work. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, so if you don't have dialogue, if you don't have narration, if you don't have music, if you don't have all those things, suddenly, you know, that image, which before was maybe just an image that you'd put sound and music and narration over, right now the image has to do all of it by itself. Um, you know, that said, my closest collaborator is my sound designer, Alejandro de Casa, who's a really talented guy who works here in Mexico, and um, he starts working with me from very early on in my process. So he looks at rushes with me, and we start to talk about, you know, what do I need to record when I'm in the field shooting and sound-wise, and how can we use the sound to kind of, um, you know, as an element with equal importance to the image. So we're talking about El Valador with Natalia Amada, and El Valador stands for uh, the Night Watchman. Now, you made this film, so not only is it almost silent, but it is very slow and beautiful. And um, I was quite um, taken by the fact that people who I think that usually would not be drawn to films that uh, are films with you know, films without action, for example, or films without a the, a certain kind of narrative arc, were able to watch and be able to engage with your film. So, which I'm really interested in how that happened, because I think naturally I would have really enjoyed your film. But I'm wondering about you taking that sort of brave move to actually put the film together in the way that you really thought that it should be, especially in this day when funding can be so difficult for films? Um, well, I think it's a gamble, and you just have to do it, or or not do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's, you know, it's really the film that I wanted to make. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I've been really lucky. I have a lot of support from POV, for example, the television program on PBS, They've shown my three films, and they give me a lot of freedom. They trust a lot what I do, so they've been super supportive, and that helps a lot. Um, my films in general have been, let's say, on the lower scale of the budget for documentaries um, because of the way in which I work, and I just like that it gives me, you know, I, I, I do everything I can to kind of maintain my freedom to make the films the way that I want to make them. And so far, I've been lucky to have the support, and... Um, it's not for everybody. I mean, there are people who definitely will watch the film and say, you know, it's it's so slow, it's so boring, or it's, you know, but that's fine. Like, I don't think that one, you know, my interest isn't kind of reaching the least common denominator or the greatest number of people. It's, you know, making something that I think has integrity and beauty and it's moving and all those things. And so you just kind of have to take the risk and go for it. <laughs> 
So on one level, I guess um, I would say that your film kind of feels like a radical act in many different the coming together of all those elements, the the being willingness to make it in the way that you want, the ability to tell a story that we've only really heard in one kind of way, and then uh, to play with time and light and rhythm to create something that where usually it would be a, an ugly story becomes um, a beautiful story. So there's so many different elements happening. I mean, so in some ways, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be gushing over your film. It's not like I usually do this. But there's some way where there's something that seems quite extraordinary of what works in this film. Uh, and uh, it makes me wonder, uh, since so many of your films have personal elements, like El General was about, it had uh, footage that was of uh, your grandmother. And, yeah, my grandmother and my great-grandfather. Yes, and your great-grandfather and being the president of Mexico in the 20s. Um, that, And this film is an area where your family is from. Do you think that there's something about uh, the personal element of your own life and experience that somehow is also imparted in these stories? Definitely. I mean, I think... You know, people often think if something content-wise is autobiographical, it's inherently more personal. And that actually hasn't been my experience. I feel like El Venador, which isn't about my family, is actually a film in which I feel much more exposed and much more, um, I mean, I don't know if personal is the word, but it, it, it feels kind of like I expose myself as a filmmaker much more in that film for me than in my other films, which maybe are about my family. So... I think the question of kind of personal also, you know, when you embark on a film like this, you're talking two, three years of your life at least. So it has to be personal, you know. If it's not personal, why bother? <laughs> you know, it has to really be a, a commitment. But that's you such know, an interesting idea that somehow there was more of you exposed. What do you mean by that? This might be, uh, this might be, anyway, too personal, but in El General, I used all these elements. So I had my grandmother's audio recordings, and I had a soundtrack that was, you know, composed music, and uh, my narration, and archival footage, and contemporary footage, and I kind of made a film using as many elements as possible and trying to um, collage them together in a sense. And I, in some sense, in response to that experience, I wanted to see if I could make a film with as few elements as possible. So really restricting the area in which I was shooting to this corner of the cemetery. Um, it doesn't have a score. It doesn't have any dialogue. It doesn't have narration. It doesn't have t text. And so in that sense, paring down to the one thing, and I was working much more alone doing camera and sound. And, you know, in that sense, it just felt like more of a challenging personally you know to find in myself the capacity to look at things and to have patience and to be with the situation um that was present i don't know if that makes sense well i guess what you're saying is in, in el general you were the conductor and in this film you were the composer <laughs> kind of maybe <laughs> i haven't thought about it that way but that's that's possible right so uh el valador is uh showing Thursday, November 1st at 7.30 and Sunday, November 4th at 2 o'clock p.m. at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. Um, the tickets are available at 
ybca.org or you can call for more information 415-978-2787 and I just want to thank you Natalia Amala for being on our show and congratulations again on winning the MacArthur oh thank you uh, so once again, this is one of the very interesting series that are happening this coming month at uh, Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. I just want to briefly mention that one of my favorite of, uh, I don't know how quite to describe him, he's a Czech animator, Jan Svankmeyer. He's a, he uses stop motion animation, he uses claymation, he uses puppetry, and he uses live action all together. In a really interesting way, he's made the best film about Alice in Wonderland that you, you could imagine seeing. Um, he, there's going to be a retrospective of his work also at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in November. You can see Alice Faust, um, Conspirators of Pleasure, about um, these six people who try to figure out different ways of getting perverse pleasure and surviving life, which is his new film, which is a comedy about Freudian life, something really interesting to check out. And then I also want to mention a couple of series that are happening at uh, Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley. There's going to be a tribute to Chris Marker, very interesting filmmaker, November 2nd through the 30th. And then also the music of Kunlan Nancaro, a really interesting composer who moved from the Bay Area to Mexico City, actually. And that's going to be November 2nd through 4th with a lot of very interesting uh, music accompaniment and then Kidlot Tahimik who is a Filipino filmmaker who has really done sort of post-colonial documentary film that's fantastic so check out those things at bampfa.org and your Buena Center for the Arts my name is Raina Cowan and I've been your host today on cover to cover frame to frame and I will be back for uh the, the fourth week in November and the fifth week in November. So I hope you'll join me then for more here on KPFA. Thank you for listening. <laughs>